Good. Well, good morning, church family. It's a great delight to be back with you. It really is, after such a long gap. And I want to say a special thank you to uh, all those who've stood in the gap uh, while Gillian and I have been away, whether it was in the pulpit or attending to the affairs of the church. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you also for your prayers for us, um, because it was an extremely good trip. Um, The first two weeks were really totally focused on ministry. We spoke in two different churches, attended the EMA Ministry Assembly, and had 21 different meetings with ministry partners and prayer supporters. So it was a very busy time, but a very encouraging time. Uh, I think particularly for me, the EMA conference is a a great time because there are 1,200 ministers from around the world, many of them in very, very difficult places indeed. So one of the electives I was doing, uh, I made friends with a man called Wasim, who serves in Pakistan. And as you know, Pakistan really is frontline Christianity. Uh, His job is to pastor 70 other pastors most of whom run their churches underground, they have to meet in secret. And of course, the suffering and persecution they've experienced there has been of the most extreme kind. So it's good, isn't it, to meet people like that who, despite such difficulties, are pressing on. And uh, I think we were both very encouraged for that. Um, But I also want to say to you that everybody that we met is excited about what God is doing in Africa and therefore they're excited about what God is doing in our little fellowship because they realise that a number of you are training for pastoral ministry in other African countries uh, where God is already at work. So they're very excited about that and they pray for us. Some of them support us as a church financially and we thank God for it. And then perhaps the last thing to say is that Christianity in the UK has been going through a very bad time and continues to do so. But it is notable that in London, the liveliest churches and the churches that are overflowing are the African churches. Uh, They're chock-a-block full, particularly the churches that are run by our Nigerian brothers. So there are good things happening in England, even if not amongst the Anglo-Saxons. Anyway, we must now turn to our study in the book of Judges. And uh, I hope you've got page 173 open in front of you. Would you also please have the white bulletin open with an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes? And uh, I'm going to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us today and every day until we are with you in heaven forever. We thank you that you are with us now to speak to us through your word. Give us the humility of heart we need to listen to what you're saying. And we pray that we might be strengthened and challenged by it. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, I think, certain moments in our lives that change absolutely everything. Um, The birth of your first child is like that, because uh, after that, the lives of the parents are never the same again. The death of a last surviving parent is like that. 
uh, during their lifetime, that person preserved the, the memories of their generation for us. But now they're gone. We might call these moments boundary events. Because boundary events are moments of irreversible change. So, uh, here in South Africa, the first democratic elections in 1994 were a boundary event in that sense. It was a moment when everything changed. Now, the book of Judges begins with one of these boundary events. Verse 1 says, After the death of Joshua. The death of Joshua was a boundary event for Israel. Uh, It wasn't the only boundary event in Israel's history, of course. There have been a number of others before it. Indeed, the book uh, before Judges, the book of Joshua, which we studied last year, that book begins with another boundary event, because the first words in that book are, after the death of Moses. Now Moses, of course, was a towering, gigantic figure in Israel, so his death was a very significant boundary event. But in a sense, it wasn't as major a boundary event as the death of Joshua. Because after Moses, there was Joshua, and Joshua was another Moses-like figure. Joshua was Moses' anointed successor and his ministry was really an extension of Moses' ministry. So after Moses there was Joshua, but you see, after Joshua, well, there was no one in particular. And that brings Israel to a crisis point. Now that is actually the nature of boundary events. They are moments of uncertainty, that they generate a sense of crisis. People start saying, what on earth are we going to do now? Uh, Now, it wasn't a complete vacuum, of course. Uh, Joshua had left Israel with the book of the law that he'd been given from, uh, received from Moses. So, in that sense, he had left them with, with a charter. He'd left them with a word from God that told them how they were to live. And before he died, Joshua told them how they were to proceed with the conquest of the land. Uh, So look it up later, but in Joshua 23, he told them there's still a great deal of the land to be possessed. And he said that each tribe was to go up and occupy the land that God had allocated to them. And you remember that he told them also not to compromise with the religious practices of the Canaanites. And of course he'd also left them his personal example of great faithfulness to the Lord. Indeed there was actually a sense in which they'd been brought into the land by the faithfulness of Joshua, their leader. And so, now, as we come to the book of Judges, the first thing we see is something of the legacy of this tremendous man, this great leader, what Joshua left behind him when he died. And what an excellent legacy 
it was. Uh, Just turn over the page a moment to chapter 2, verse 7, because chapter 2, verse 7 is a summary of Joshua's legacy. It says there, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. And uh, Caleb, who we meet in the passage that Alice just read for us, is one of those elders who outlived Joshua. So, in the opening verses of the book, we see something, if you like, of the afterglow of Joshua's great leadership, uh, his legacy. And I want to mention two aspects of that in particular. Notice back in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, those who follow Joshua inquire of the Lord. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites ask the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Now, Joshua had never ever focused attention on himself. He always directed those that he led to look at Yahweh as their leader. Yahweh, of course, is the personal name of God. Uh, It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And Joshua and Israel knew God by his personal name, Yahweh which is translated uh, simply by the words L-O-R-D in capital letters in our Bibles. And uh, if you were with us last year, you'll remember that Joshua had an astonishing encounter with the Lord right at the beginning of his career. Do you remember that day when he was approaching Jericho and all of a sudden he, he met the angel of the Lord on the road who told him that he was the commander of the Lord's army. And if we read that passage properly, we discover that, uh, just as Joshua did, that that was none other than Yahweh himself. In other words, Yahweh was the commander of his own army and Joshua was his deputy. Now, that incident must have made a huge impression on Joshua because Joshua never ever focused attention on himself, but always on Yahweh, the true leader of his people. And it's part of Joshua's legacy that after he's gone, the people continue to look to Yahweh as their leader. Now, we're not actually told how the inquiry was made in verse 1. It might have been through a priest, it might have been through a prophet. Uh, We don't actually know. There's some mystery about that. Um, But the reason we're not told is because it's not actually the most important thing in the text. The most important thing here is the disposition, the attitude that the inquiry reveals to us. And that disposition, that that looking to Yahweh as leader, is part of Joshua's legacy. Now the other thing to notice, of course, is the response that is received, and I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. 
But first, I want to highlight another aspect of Joshua's legacy because the second thing that we see in the opening section is the unity of Israel at this point. Now, I guess all of us have uh, witnessed the very sad spectacle of divided families. Uh, The head of the family dies and uh, before you know it, uh, people are squabbling Uh, They're squabbling over the will, they're fighting about money, they're arguing about who's going to uh, be top dog in the family now. And ugly things are said, and people get hurt. The same thing, of course, happens in nations, doesn't it? A strong leader holds on to power by playing off politicians against one another. On the surface, the nation looks united, but it isn't really. And then when the leader dies, the battle for the top job begins. Now we might think that now Joshua has gone, there would be disunity amongst the people of God as the the elders start battling it out to decide who's going to fill Joshua's boots. But that, that isn't actually the case in the opening verses. There is cooperation. There is invitation and response. You can see that in verse 3 and again in verse 17. So the men of Judah say to the Simeonites, come and assist us and then we will come and assist you. So there's this marvellous unity among the tribes supporting one another in the challenges that now have to be faced. Now their unity, of course, is going to be tested and in the course of the book of Judges it's going to be almost totally obliterated before it recovers somewhat towards the end. But here at the beginning of the book it is there and it's a very important part of Joshua's legacy. Some leaders divide people Uh, They leave the people fragmented. Other leaders draw people together. Well, Joshua did that. And the, the obvious unity of the people at this point is part of his legacy. And so at the beginning of the book of Judges, we find the legacy of a great man and a great leader. And then the second thing that we see here is the practical blessing of God on his people. It's actually summed up for us towards the end of the passage in verse 19. Uh, You'll notice if you put your nose on it, verse 19, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. Now, you can't have a better blessing than that. To have the living God with you in whatever it is you're doing. The tangible, practical blessing of God. And as a result of God's blessing, uh, Israel enjoys some remarkable victories. Uh, There's a whole catalogue of them here and you'll be pleased to know we're not going to look at them in detail. But there are two little episodes in the narrative that I want to draw your attention to. The first is is a little bit grotesque and uh, it concerns the victory 
over Adonai Bezek, or the Lord of Bezek, which is what that word means, and you find that in verses 4 to 7. It's really important for us to realise that that is not about revenge. Israel had not suffered at the hands of this man, but other people had. Specifically, we're told that Adonai Bezek had mutilated 70 kings by cutting off their thumbs and their big toes. I've always wondered about that. Have you always wondered about that? Apparently, it was uh, practice in in, uh, warfare in ancient Canaan that if you won the battle, you, you mutilated the leaders of the enemy army so that they couldn't fight again. You can't hold a sword, can you, if you've had your your thumb cut off? Well, it may well have been standard practice, but God detests it. And following Judah's victory, God brings terrible but just retribution on this man. In other words, in that particular incident... There's a great deal more going on than God simply giving his people the land. Now, we're being told how God judged the Canaanites for their evil practices. And Judah is an instrument in his hand to do it. Strange as that may seem, it is actually part of God's blessing of Judah. Because they're being caught up in the larger purposes of God, the greater thing that God is doing. God God is using Judah to accomplish his purposes in the world. And that actually is one aspect of God's blessing on his people. Now let me say straight away, that doesn't mean that you and I have a mandate from God to go around cutting off people's thumbs and big toes. So please don't, please don't do that. Uh, but you see, what's happening here is this event is pointing us forward to the far distant future because there's a place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says that one day Christians will share in God's work of judging the world. If you're taking notes, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And you can look it up later. Now that hasn't happened yet. But one day it will. And I want to say, this is really big. This is huge. Why is it huge? Well, It's huge, of course, because it's an enormous privilege to be part of God's larger agenda for the world. Yes, of course it is. But there's more to it than that. Because, you see, it's a promise that the cruel tyrants who cause such misery in our world today are not all-powerful. Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin... Uh, Drug lords in Cape Town, gang leaders, look all-powerful. They cause terrible misery. We don't know how to stop them. But you see, unless they repent, God will call them to account. And one day, we Christians 
will share in God's victory over them. This text is anticipating that. The other aspect of God's blessing uh, in these uh, verses is a bit more positive and it has to do with Caleb and his daughter in verses 11 to 15. And here we're, we're moving geographically from the hill country down to the Negev, which is the, the arid plain in the south of the country. And uh, Caleb gives his daughter in marriage to Othniel, who's distinguished himself in battle. And we'll say more about him in a couple of weeks' time. But, but here, Caleb also gives his daughter springs of water to irrigate the arid Negev, which is her dowry in the marriage. So can you see in this little story that we've got a picture of the desert blooming, which is another symbol of the blessing of God. So stand back, think of the big picture in in these opening verses. At this stage... We have not just victory in battle, but marriage, land, fertility. And it's telling us, you see, that the blessing of God is rich and the blessing of God is abundant. Now, not everything, of course, in the passage is uh, perfect. It's not all going well. There are some very unsettling things towards the end of the passage, uh, which are all pointing to the trouble ahead. But at this stage, the general picture is one of the abundant blessing of God on his people. And so we've got the legacy of Joshua and the blessing of God But now we need to go back for a moment and look again at that inquiry in verse 2. Because it's right at the beginning of the book and that means it's important. So we need to look at it a little bit more closely. The question is, who will lead us? Joshua's gone. Who's going to go up and fight for us? And the answer is Judah. Verse 2, the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into, literally, his hand. It's actually one of those loaded verses in the Bible. It's, It's heavy with significance. Judah is to go. In a sense, it shouldn't have surprised anybody because Judah had already been singled out as the leading tribe by Jacob. So please will you keep a finger in Judges and turn back with me to Genesis 49 on page 43 and we'll be in the right-hand column. Genesis chapter 49, page 43, right-hand column. Now what we've got here are the last words of Jacob. Uh, You remember that Jacob was the, the great patriarch of Israel, the father of the twelve tribes. 
And here he is on his deathbed, blessing his sons. Now this is not a normal deathbed speech, because what Jacob said was what God said about each, about the destiny of each tribe. So look at what Jacob says about Judah in verse 8 and following. Right hand column, page 43. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So you see, as the book of Judges begins, uh, the Israelites don't really need to ask the question because the answer's already there in Genesis 49. But you see, this is why the Lord says in Judges, Judah is to go. Because Judah was destined for leadership in Israel from the very beginning. Think about this. Moses was not from the tribe of Judah. Joshua was not from the tribe of Judah. But in the longer term, it was always going to be Judah. It had to be. God had decreed it. And so in a sense, when we get to Judges 1, Judah's time had come. But the leadership that Israel would need to bring it into the full enjoyment of God's promises would come from Judah. And not just from the tribe, but from someone who would arise from that tribe. And so I want to say that there's something beginning here in Judges that will eventually have its outworking in King David and eventually, of course, in a son of David. We'll come back to Judges 1, page 173 uh, and notice in the passage, in light of what we've said, how quickly in this passage we move from Judah in verse 2 to Jerusalem in verse 8 to Othniel in verse 13, because Othniel's going to be the first judge in Judges. And he's going to be the best of the lot. And Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. And then as the book continues, it becomes clear that Israel desperately needs a king. And so after the book of Judges... The Bible's story takes us to the emergence of David, who becomes the greatest of Israel's kings in the Old Testament. And David is from the tribe 
of Judas. He's also, of course, the ancestor of the Lord Jesus, humanly speaking. But it all starts with Judah. So something's beginning here in Judges chapter 1 that's going to develop into the central message of the entire Bible. Now, of course, the, the leadership of the tribe of Judah here is provisional. That's why Genesis 49 says the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. So you see, we're waiting for an individual, not a tribe. But the point I'm sure you can see is that the leadership God's chosen people are going to need to bring them into the full enjoyment of God's promises comes through Judah. The Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. And here for the first time, we're seeing that beginning to be fulfilled. So let's now, just for a few moments, reflect on the significance of this passage for you and me this morning and how you and I might respond. It's a passage, isn't it, about somebody's legacy, the legacy of Joshua, and it's a very good legacy indeed. Because here are people who inquire of God, here are people who obey God's commands, here are people who are faithful to the commission that Joshua gave them. And they enjoy the blessing of God in what they're doing. That's a terrific legacy, isn't it? And here at St Barnabas, you see, you and I share in a wonderful legacy. Because the true church, the worldwide church, is the legacy of Jesus Christ. And our little fellowship here is part of that legacy. It's the fruit of his work. Before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, it is good for you that I go, because I will send another comforter, the Spirit of Truth, and he will be with you forever. And so you see, because of him, we have the Bible. And because of him... We have solid answers to the biggest questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And you see, we wouldn't know the answers to those questions without Christ. But we also have one another in the fellowship of the local church. You know, Jesus brings people together in unity to love and serve one another in the fellowship of the local church. And so we are participating in his wonderful legacy here at St Barnabas. And in a derivative sense, we participate in the legacy of particular people that Jesus has used Um, It's the legacy of men, some of you know them, some of you don't. Uh, Men like Dick Lucas, David Jackman, uh, V.J. Menon, Dr. David Seckham, 
These men have left their imprint on our fellowship, both by their teaching and by their example. They might not have been in this building physically, but but they've taught us God's design for the church, and they've shown us how to understand what God is saying in his word. They've kept us spiritually safe. So it's a great thing, isn't it, to leave a good legacy. And as a result, we enjoy the blessing of God in our fellowship, in in our spiritual growth personally, and of course in our relationships with one another. So friends, can I say to you this morning, God is with us. God is among us. God is working out his big purposes through us. So let's praise God for that legacy and for everything God is doing in us and through us. But, as we go on through the book of Judges, we are going to be reminded that a good legacy can be squandered in less than a generation. That's all it takes. So let's thank God for the legacy we enjoy today. Let's treasure it. Let's pray that we don't waste it. And let's not compromise with those who prefer something rather more worldly. And perhaps personally we need to be asking ourselves as we leave church this morning about our personal legacy. What legacy are we leaving to our children and the people that we share our lives with? So that's the first thing we need to take away from the text today. Let's thank God for the legacy we have in Jesus. Let's be careful not to squander it and let's think about our own personal legacy. But there's more here. You see, this passage has been about God providing effective leadership for his people. And it's always a shock, isn't it, when someone who's made a massive impact on the church is taken from us. They've they've had a huge impact on our lives. Suddenly they're not there anymore. Uh, Millions of people around the world were powerfully impacted by the evangelistic vision and preaching of Billy Graham. Um, He died earlier this year. And uh, when his ministry was at its peak, thousands of people were getting converted to Christ at his meetings. And so his death was a boundary event. It marked the end of an era in which we saw God doing amazing things, saw tremendous victories that we scarcely thought possible. And so when he died, for for many older Christians, there was a, a tremendous sense of loss. And I guess on a smaller scale, uh, most of us know people whose, whose influence on us personally has been so profound that we almost feel that they are irreplaceable. But can I say the reality is that no human being is irreplaceable. No, sorry, is indispensable. Because you see, time, time moves on. 
And God remains faithful to his people. And in every generation, he raises up godly leaders to care for them. But none of them is perfect. And and idolising human leaders can be very dangerous indeed. Because it can lead us into the kind of hero worship that makes it very hard for us to see beyond the leaders to the God who gave them. You see, the fact is that if all those people that we admire today and feel dependent on today were taken from us tomorrow, actually we would not be leaderless. Because the leadership that Judah gave to Israel in our passage has been fulfilled for us in Jesus. You see? He is our supreme leader. He's the perfecter of our faith. And so it is to Jesus that we must look and and in his name go forward and possess and enjoy everything God has for us. And if we do that, we'll not only be greatly blessed ourselves, but like Joshua, we will leave a rich legacy to the people who follow And then lastly, think about this. Uh, We began this morning by saying that the book of Judges begins with a boundary event, the death of Joshua. Uh, After the death of Joshua, everything was going to be different. The road ahead was suddenly very unclear. Now some of you are facing boundary events this morning. Uh, Leaving college is a boundary event. Some of you are doing that in just a few months' time. Marriage is a boundary event. Starting a new job is a boundary event. Boundary events are part of life. If we don't have boundary events, nothing changes. We don't go forward. And so there's a sense in which we need boundary events. Um, They're a good thing, even if they are rather unsettling. So can I say to you this morning that if you are facing a boundary event, that God is your leader and your strength. You see, your circumstances may change, but the kingdom of God goes on. And if you're a Christian, God has promised that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Isn't that tremendous? You can't have a greater blessing in your life than that. So be faithful to the ministry that he's called you to, whatever that ministry might be. Whatever it is, build your life on God and his word. Look to God every day for strength and wisdom so that you can do what he's called you to do. He's your leader and he is all that you need. And can I say to you that as you rely on him, you will prevail. You will prevail. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that you would press this word into the very depths of our being so that we might not only hear it with our ears, but we might know the truth of it and live in the strength of it today, this week, and in all the years to come. For we ask it in Jesus' name.